Welcome to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. Every week, I host live chats via our YouTube channel with leaders in the AFL and high-performance industries. Join me live every Sunday at 6pm where I debrief the recent chats and announce the upcoming guests. We drop an inspiring and educational episode every Monday. If you like the show, please follow us on your favourite podcast app. Hi, I'm your host, Jack McLean, and today my guest is Aaron Kellett, the physical performance coach at Australia Men's Cricket Team. Aaron has spent almost 20 years of experience in elite sport, bringing a background in both strength and conditioning and sports science. Prior to his current role, Aaron has been in leadership positions at Tennis Australia and the Western Bulldogs. Highlights from this episode. We discuss the importance of athletes understanding how to practice mindfully, practical tips for strength and conditioning coaches wanting to progress their careers. Aaron discussed the importance of understanding how to serve your athletes and club and how personal training and business skills can help you when you're working in high-performance sport. Before we start with this episode, to connect with our guests, coaches, athletes, and fellow podcast listeners, make sure to follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. It'd be great if you could like, share, and rate this episode. The support goes a long way in helping us grow and reach more people. Let's get into today's episode with Aaron Keller. Thanks for jumping on, Aaron. Pleasure, Jack. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for your honour. Looking forward to our chat, mate. Let's let's dive right at the beginning of uh, your career. At what age did you discover you had a passion for strength and conditioning? Yeah, look, that's a while, while ago now, isn't it? I, I think if I was to look back on, on sort of where it all started, um, I was back in 1994, which is a long time ago, I was a member of the Victorian Institute of Sport cricket squad. And, you know, I was still sort of aspiring to wear the baggy green myself. And as part of that scholarship program, I'd it was my last year of high school. I'd, I'd have to travel in three times a week into RMIT where I'd do my weights program. And it was my first exposure to what is classically known as strength conditioning. And a guy named Vern McMillan was the strength conditioning coach for the Victorian Institute of Sport then. And I'd go in there as a sort of 17-year-old and I'd be training at, you know, 6.30 in the morning and members of the awesome foursome would be, you know, power cleaning weights and, you know, other really elite athletes to be walking around the, RM, the old RMIT gym in the city. And I was amazed and blown away by what people could do. And so for me, I was just really inspired. Okay, that was, that was you know, a way that I could improve myself. Um, and so experiencing that, that, that approach and, and really getting into my own physical preparation, um, yeah, showed me that there was, there was a sort of a, an industry or a, or a profession sitting behind that. Um, so when I went through that sort of career, career development process, because I was in my final year of high school at the time and looking to figure out what I was going to do at uni, um, that was one of the platforms. And I was really into biology. I was really into um, chemistry and I was really into physical education. Um, so, yeah, that was, a, that was the sort of path I took um, with going into a Bachelor of Applied Science in what started as physical education and into human movement. So. That was probably the first foray into, into realising that there was, a, there was a, a job and a profession out there that involved training people and training athletes to, to be elite performers. Yeah, awesome. And that, yeah, it's, it's so important to, to see it, isn't it, and, and feel it and be in, in that environment. For, for the young coaches listening in um, that don't have that ability right now to, to be in that environment, but they feel like they're, that they're studying and they feel like that there is a passion there, um, what, would you, what would your recommendation be for for being in that position if you're not lucky enough to be a talented athlete, I guess. Yeah. I mean, one, one of the huge advantages and, and, and the big shifts today is that, you know, I just described that. That was my first exposure. I didn't know there was anything like this out there, right? 
Um, and that's because the accessibility of information, it was just not the same, you know. Whereas now, I think, you know, the ability to understand and to, and to get, you know, gather information and get insights into, into what it takes to be, a, you know, a, a top practitioner, a top, a top performer is, is really, it was really easy to, to get hold of. Um, so for young coaches, I think it's, you know, it's very easy to get the information. It's really easy to understand the X's and O's of what we do. You know, the, the best piece of advice, and I'm sure I've, I've you know, listened to some of your podcasts previously. You know, I think it's a really consistent theme from some of us old, old cronies, right? It's just you've got to get, you've got to get in the trenches and coach. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to be you know, a strength conditioning coach. You know, some of the most impactful stuff for me early on was when I was coaching young cricketers at, with, in a private academy, teaching them on a Friday night how to hit cover drives and, you know, land the ball on the cut on the cut surface right so you know i think you got to get in the trenches as young coaches and, and learn how to organize human traffic and manage attention and communicate with people and elicit behavioral change and uh, early on in your career like as you mentioned um uh, Vern mcmillan well, who were some other strong influences that uh helped you along your way yeah the, f- the first person who gave me a gave me a shot was david butterfin you know, I, I was in my you know, final year of my undergrad degree and David Butterfield was at the North Melbourne Football Club at the time and, and through some personal connections through, through my cricket, and, you know, he gave me a bit of a shot and it was a volunteer. It was doing all of the sort of bits and pieces work at the North Melbourne Footy Club, trying to essentially help David's job um, to be a little bit easier. You know, the resources at an AFL club in the late 90s were not the same as they are now. Um, so I was really lucky to a get a get an opportunity and b because there wasn't you know every man and his dog there I was able to you know get a feel for all parts of the program. Um, so he was a, he was a big influence in in my, in my sort of stepping into this profession and certainly being able to get get exposure to you know the elite, elite performance. You mentioned something that uh, I noted down. You were you know, your intention was to assist his role because of the resources were limited uh, and you were doing a little bit of everything. And so uh, same for, for the coaches that are listening. Um, obviously, it is challenging and it's competitive and, and you've got to be thinking about where you're going uh, and, and your career, of course. But how important is it to have that selfless mindset and be there to assist those that are um, in those leadership positions, I guess? Yeah, I think there's, two, I think there's two, two layers to it, right? Like one, is, one is the recognition that actually the job that we do as coaches is to serve others, right? Is to, is to lift, elevate others into being the best version they can be to get the, you know, achieve their dreams, you know, to avoid the, you know, apologies for the cliche. Um, so that's the first and foremost is being in a service mindset is really important, you know, to succeed. And secondly, it's really, it's really difficult to, you know, forecast where you're going to be at any given time in your career. Um, so what I've learned over time is that the best way, the best way to pr- progress in your career is just do a great job in the one you're in right now. You know, so if you're, if you're, if you're a sports science assistant um, and your job is to take USGs and you know, put GPS units on players and make sure they come back and you know, some of the real menial tasks, just do a great job. You know, and that'll be, that'll be recognized because you know, those are the things that actually make an impact. It's just making everyone's life easy, making sure that things are delivered really well and that ultimately that we're helping, we're helping the people around us be able to do what they do. If, and you're forming good habits, aren't you? Just like an athlete. Like if you're treating those 
potentially smaller things that maybe are quite easy to for, for someone else to do and they don't feel special or sexy but if you're treating them with the respect of the big things and the things that you're trying to strive towards and, and to be able to make an impact with but if you if you look after those little things uh, it's going to put you in good stead later on when you're in a position to to make a big impact would you yeah well said yeah well said and 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 going on with influencers and, and mentors um who are some other guys that help uh, help you along the way in, in the yeah I mean, yeah so early on it was all about trying to be the best best sort of technician and practitioner I could be. So a lot, of, a lot of the sort of people that I was able to work with, you know, so early on I, I, would, I moved up to Brisbane to work at Cricket Australia after my AFL days and I was able to, um, you know, get some exposure to the Queensland Academy of Sport, you know, and work with people like Kieran Young and Suki Hobson and Michael Davey. You know, these, these, these are high-level practitioners, you know, um, really, really amazing at what they do, working across multiple sports. Um, so certainly from a technical perspective, you know, some of, some of those, those influences from, um, you know, Julian Jones at the AAS, you know, Dan Baker, they, these guys that um, have been in the game for long periods of time at the elite level, they, they were massive influences on my sort of technical development. And then as I, as I sort of progressed through my career, then, then the coaching stuff becomes really, really inter- interesting and, and integral. And so those, those, that's where the head coaches are, have been the biggest influence on me. Because as a you know as a performance as a performance coach, um, you know with the, the head coach is essentially the wind in your sail, right? So your ability to to sort of work closely with the head coach um, is crucial. So you know in my time at, at tennis, you know people like Simon Ray, you know Bernard Gerlitz, you know Brent Larkham, these people, you know amazing coaches, Ben Mathias, Josh Eagle, Pat Rafter, these are you know amazing. At what they do and then you know in cricket Darren Lehman and more recently Justin Langer you know like these these people are elite at you know managing programs and eliciting behavioral change in in, in athletes you mentioned yeah the developing the technical side um, while a coach is going through that phase where they're developing their philosophy and, and you're refining things and you're developing your, your technical side and, and like you mentioned you're coaching um, when when you see something that's done really, really well, and you want to, uh, uh, you know, bring that into your practice, how quick would you do it? Is it first trying it on yourself? Is it first just sitting with it, and is it a slow burn, or do you think once once you've made your mind up and you're like, now nah, I've seen that, I'm just going to transfer it straight over? Like, or is it is it an off season review, and you know you'll implement it into pre season? Like, take us through how you'll implement new methods, I guess, and philosophies. Yeah, I think I think it's I think it's all all of the above, right? Like I think you know certainly per- personal experience is, is an important part of um, any sort of research of a method, right? Understanding understanding the experience that um, that a method or a you know a principle um, entails is really important. Um, yep. You know, being able to walk walk the talk a little bit, um, but certainly making sure that you understand you know what what is the evidence behind this, you know. What is, what is the science? What's the, re, what's the research telling you if, if there's any there? And if not, what's, what's, some, of the, what's some of the practical um, real-world real world data that's, that, that exists, if any? And I think those are, you know, th- those are all, of, all of the levels of evidence that I think you want to try and um, pick off before you start rolling it out to you know, an elite athlete cohort that you know, are really sensitive to change. Yeah. Okay. I like that. So yeah, it's a, so it's a, a balance between speak to other practitioners that are in a similar position to yourself, uh, as well as being up to date with the latest research as well. 
Um, what would be, if there was a percentage split, how often would it be speaking to other colleagues opposed to reading up and listening to podcasts or researching and, you know, more of that reading books, that form of uh, content? Oh, I wouldn't want to put a sort of a, a numerical value on it, but, it, but it's, yeah. a, you know, I, I, value, I value practical real-world evidence, um, you know, and there's, there's, you know, some key people that I would turn to or, you know, some key sectors that I might look to um, for some of that, for some of that evidence. Um, but certainly, you know, the, the information is always available. Um, yeah. Fantastic. Going back to your career progression. So David Butterfield helped you out with, um, an internship sort of informal internship role yeah. when you're getting some experience in different fields. Um, where did you go next in your, in your career? Yeah. So at, at that stage, I was, I was still aspiring to, you know, represent Australia and, you know, standing on the MCG on boxing day as a player. Right. So, I actually went and, you know, went over to the UK and played some cricket over there. And when I came back, the, the opportunities in sport were just not there. So I actually, I actually pivoted and went into general population and worked in, you know, council leisure centres and private gyms and ran a personal training business and looked after community rehab programs and worked on the gym floor and those types of things for yeah, five years. Um, yeah, right. Yeah. And that's actually uh, something that has popped up a fair bit in uh, experienced practitioners in elite sport. Um, there is early days, some experience in coaching on the field. And you talk about the importance of, of learning coaching and the art of communication from head coaches. Yeah. Running a business has a different skill set as well. Uh, and then also the one-on-one the -on -one coaching. How, how have those sort of skill sets transferred into now you're in leadership positions? Like are there, has it transferred over? Uh, and if so, um, what sort of traits do? Yeah, definitely. I mean, from my perspective, the, the, the themes that keep emerging are, you know, the ability to communicate with people. Um, you know, so when, you, when you're working on a gym floor or working in a, you know, community rehab program or, um, you know, working as a personal trainer, you're, you, you're interfacing with a, you know, a huge diversity of people, um, which, which ex just expands your ability to have conversations and ask meaningful questions and understand the drivers behind certain people, behind people's behavior, right? That's a really, really key part of coaching. Um, you know, the ability to, you know, manage, manage adults, you know, in a sort of group dynamic is that's a really big part of what we do, right? So to be able to do that with people of varying skill levels, varying competencies, varying capacities, um, those, those are the things that you get to experience when you're working, um, with general population um, clients, and so those are those are invaluable for stepping into into sport where the group tends to be a little bit more homogenous, but certainly got varying varying degrees of, of capacities and capabilities just the same. So these are these are highly transferable skills, and then understanding you know from from a business perspective, you touched upon that, like understanding understanding the commercial realities of the world is, is that's important. You know, understand, understanding what the financial cost for a player's injury, I think, is important. It gives you perspective and understanding about um, where some of the drivers are from different parts of a sporting business, for example. I think those are, yeah. those are meaning, meaningful, meaningful bits of um, knowledge that, that, are, that you can gain. So you can, yeah, like you mentioned, understand that perspective. You can have a better ability to be able to connect with the greater sporting club, you feel, by having those experiences. Definitely, definitely. Because... You know, I mean, Australian cricket's a perfect example. You know, there's a, a, a huge beast. You've got you know, a variety of stakeholders. You've got a huge, huge um, financial interest in the game. That's a perfect example for understanding where 
you know, player appearances and, you know, commercial, commercial commitments for the team. These are, these, are, these are realities that can impact you day to day and without sort of an understanding and a perspective about the value of, and where that sits and, and why that's important. I think it can be a real frustration and, um, and actually you, you can be a, you know, if you don't do that well, you can be actually a detriment to the business. And you mentioned that opportunities were slim at that period of time from a strength yeah. and conditioning point of view in sport and five years is, is, a, is a good stretch. No doubt there'll be a few coaches listening with COVID. There's been some cuts in sport and that sort of thing yeah. and then they've gone into the personal training. Maybe they're doing a bit of it and sport. Now they're doing it full time. Um, what was your mindset like at that time? Did you know um, you're 100% going back when the time's right? Did you think, okay, we're just, you're just parking it or were you doing some things behind the scene to stay actively in tune with those skill sets, um, yeah, take us through sort of your approach during those. Yeah, I, I was still, I was still doing bits and pieces, you know, with local sporting clubs, my own, my own career club at the time. Um, you know, we were doing, bit, you know, some some small, you know, more program delivery stuff into some netball netball teams. So we, I still sort of was doing bits and pieces here and there, and it was it was really informal and it was you know it was intermittent in nature. But certainly, you know, looking back, I, I, I sort of, I was very much, like I said before, I was very much just trying to do a good job in the one I was in, right? And so I sort of wasn't really thinking about, you know, how will I get back into elite sport? Um, you know, I was enjoying what I was doing. And it just, it just happened that, a, you know, a, a contact, a personal connection again through, through my own sport, knew that I was doing bits and pieces, had used me to do um, some bits and pieces, you know, at Essendon Footy Club, you know, delivering sort of a, you know, pseudo Pilates type session. Um, you know, he, he, they, he, he was at the Western Bulldogs and they were looking for a weights coach, you know, part-time weights coach. And I was able to fit it into my, into my schedule while still doing personal training. And um, yeah, so that's how I sort of got back into elite sport as a, as a part-time weights coach at the Western Bulldogs in sort of back end of 2005. Right, okay. Yeah. So yeah, like you mentioned earlier in the podcast, like do a really good job of what you're currently doing and almost trust that and it will, take care of you that certainly served me i mean i'm not i've never been one to have the the five-year plan right so you know yeah. maybe it's just maybe it's just sort of self-serving in, in me just you know selling the strengths of that but I, it certainly served me you know like i'm just trying to do a good job in the one i'm in is generally provided opportunities yeah and it, and something i've uh picked up as well speaking to people is the importance of if you want a long career in sport work in many different sports um but on that note that what you're saying there you sort of um, you took the opportunity as they presented themselves, and, and you know did a really good job within them. So it wasn't the plan early days, or a mentor didn't say, "Aaron, you need to work across AFL, tennis, Australia, cricket, Australia, uh, QAS, Olymp- you know, track and field, Olympic." Uh, that, that's sort of what organically happened. Is that what you're saying? Very much so. Yeah, very much so. I had no, I had no sort of career aspiration to be you know the high performance manager of an AFL club or. To be the physical performance coach of the Australian cricket team, you know these are these are amazing sort of opportunities I've been able to, you know, be presented to me along the way, and you know I like to think it's because I've done a good job, and I'm, you know, I've been able to, um, you know, positively impact the performance environments I've, I've been in. But certainly, you know, I've I've very much, you know, taken taken the opportunities that have been presented that and that have also represented the things that I've, I've felt important. You know, that sort of not necessarily just sort of grabbing the first, the first thing that presents, but certainly being, being aware of the things that are important and, and recognising the, the environments that might, that, might, that might meet those. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, at this time, you're doing some personal training, um, community rehab, as you mentioned. 
you'd start with a bit of Pilates at Essendon and then you got a part-time role as a strength and power coach at um, Western Bulldogs. Uh, how did the progression within the Western Bulldogs role and what did the role sort of look like? Um, while yeah, essentially, uh, you know, a guy named Justin Cordy hired me, you know, and, uh, you know, apologies earlier for, for people that I miss, you know, I'm, I'm sure, you know, in me reeling off names that have, have been influences on me, that I've, I'm sure I've missed 15 or 20 people that have been huge influences. I just shout out and apologies to those people and uh, hopefully you know, who, you know who you are. But Justin Cordy hired me um, at the Western Bulldogs and at the back end of 2005, he, took, he actually took the job to work with the Australian cricket team. And, right. and through a, a variety of circumstances, I ended up um, stepping into his shoes um, towards the back end of the, of the preseason for the 2006 year um, yeah, and took on the sort of physical performance manager role um, with the Western Bulldogs from there. So, yeah, I went from, you know, part-time weights coach and yeah. hopefully doing a reasonable job and making a positive impact to, um, yeah, being sort of given the opportunity to, to step into Justin's roles when he, when he moved on to, to Australian cricket. Yeah, that's huge growth in a, in a new sport. Um, did, what, what leadership qualities like do you think they sort of to be able to have trust in yourself to be able to manage a program? I think, uh, well, I'm speculating, but I like to think that I was, I was coaching well. Um, I, think, I think I was delivering sort of a reasonable, reasonable product into the, into the sort of performance department. Um, I had good relationships with people. I had, I, had managed, I had managed people through my time through um, you know, that, that five years I was out of sport. Um, and I, th- I think they sort of recognized that, that I wasn't necessarily going to try and um, upset the apple cart with the, with the plans and programs and systems that had been implemented. So I think it was a, um, yeah, maybe sort of a fortuitous event. Um, and so looking back, I think it was probably, you know, I think I did an okay job. You know, we, fi- we finished up pretty well that year, but I, I think it was, it was probably a little, I was not ready for that opportunity. You know, there's some stuff I look back on. I probably, would, in hindsight, now knowing what I know now, I would technically I would have done slightly different. Um, but yeah, what a what a great opportunity! I couldn't couldn't knock that back. Yeah. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode with Aaron Kellett. We're just going to take a short break to hear a snippet of our interview with Phil Merriman, episode 29 on the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. Phil is currently the high performance manager at the Fremantle Dockers. What key points make a good leader? Can you coach leadership? Question. What key points make a good leader uh, for me? And again, it differs from person to person, but first and foremost is that you've always got the group's intentions at the front of your mind, not your own. So group or club or whatever it might be, that you're always front of mind, you're making sure that what's required for the group. That that for me is, is big. Can it be coached? Can it be taught? Oh, that's a good question. I think you can... You can you can probably manipulate it and and synthetically bring it into someone who may not have that ingrained in them, and they can almost fake it until you make it, sort of thing. But I, my, my feeling is, you have a good level of leadership built in built into you, and you can make you can allow that to grow and foster. Not not every not every one of us are leaders. That's just not the case. Hear more from Phil Merriman, the high performance manager of the Fremantle Dockers. Make sure to scroll to episode twenty nine after this interview with Aaron Kellett. Now back to the rest of the episode with Aaron. Hope you enjoy. And you mentioned um, some management experience during the five years. So for those that are um, in the private sector, um, what type of management um, work were you doing in, during that period? So, you, so it wasn't simply just doing a one-on-one business by the sound of it. it was, no, it was not at all. I mean, yeah, yeah some, some of the stuff I was doing, well, I'd, you know, I'd taken on a role as sort of health and fitness manager at, at, um, for Maribyrnong Council. Um, yep. So I was managing a team of, of fitness staff essentially. So 
um, gym gym staff, personal training, personal training team, and um, and I also had uh, someone who was looking after sort of group fitness programs um, that reported to me. So yeah, I had a I had a team of people essentially um, working across the the health and fitness programming for a council fitness center. And you, and then the next part that I wanted to open up a little bit uh, into more detail. So now knowing what you know now, what what would what would be some things that pop up to mind that you would do differently? Um, obviously, hindsight's oh, a beautiful thing, but I, I think I think I probably stuck a little too rigid to to the original plan. I, I don't think I adapted fast enough to some changes, the changing sort of load circumstances that occurred. We had we had some we had some ACL ACL injuries that that you know m- meant our our sort of um, suite of players available. You know, we had to play small. That changed our game style. So. You know, I didn't. I didn't. Think, I don't think I adapted as early as I could. I, I kept. I kept some standalone speed and agility sessions in, in the program a little a little too deep into the into the preseason and early se- early season. In hindsight, I think yeah, just uh, I think I could have adapted adapted and responded. And at the time, it was you know you sort of delivering what you think is you know the best the best path forward for for performance and things were things were sort of working. It's just I think we paid we paid the piper a little bit towards a sort of you know, back half of the year that we needed to we needed to reverse, and thankfully we we're able to do that with some with some assistance um, and some really good work collaboratively. But yeah, yeah, certainly in hindsight, there's a lot of things I think we'd all do differently in the past with certain with certain professional experiences. Of course, every day. <laughs> um, and did you bring someone in to replace yourself, or what was the high performance department like around 2005, 2006? Yeah, so the club. I mean, the club. At the end of the 2006 year, the club decided to bring in someone who would sit would sit in above me, um, which at the time was a really was a really challenging period, right? Because like, you know a young guy who's you know we just finished six, we'd beaten Collingwood in the you know elimination final in front of 85,000 people, and you know we thought we'd had a sort of really great year. It was progression on the on the year before, um, you know. So young guy, young coach, you know, big massive whack to the ego in many in many respects, right? Um, and I don't think I don't think I necessarily responded particularly well to that. Um, again, all in hindsight, right? And as you sort of mature, you can recognise that yeah, there's probably some lessons. Some lessons that I it took a little longer for me to learn. Um, but yeah, the club made a decision to bring someone in um, that I would report to. Um, and yeah, sort of that yeah, so that that sort of was through this 2006 2007 preseason. Um, yeah. Someone that has a similar experience to that, so early success, um, as you mentioned, as you're maturing as a coach and a, and a manager, um, what, what are some mature ways to respond to that when you have early success, do you think now? I, th- I, th- I think being um, you know, a, little bit, a little bit sort of insightful into your own strengths and weaknesses and particularly that there's, there's a lot to be learned from everyone around you. Those, those are things that I'd certainly advise. Um, and certainly my experience was that I didn't necessarily grasp the opportunity to learn as much as I could from the people that had been brought in that, that, that the club had actually set up to, to help me with, right? In hindsight, there, there, was a rec- there, there was a recognition that they'd, they'd brought some people in to actually help me, to recognize that I'd done some, good, some things really well, but I needed some support in some other areas. Um, yeah, okay. Oh, that is an interesting scenario, though. So you weren't a part of creating your new team. Uh, the, the club brought in your assistance. Is that, am I reading that right? 
Uh, yeah, and, and also and also a direct report, right? So essentially, you know, I was able to sort of maintain maintain a lot of sort of coaching, the coaching and the um, and the programming side of things. But there was a sort of a more of a uh, high performance type manager step in into a, into a role above me. Yeah, gotcha. That is interesting. And they were a qualified strength and conditioning coach, or they were a different background. No, absolutely. Yeah. So that, so yeah, the the person that came in had come from another another AFL club. Within the okay. same, the same, you know, the previous few years. So yeah, it was a, someone who'd had some success at a at a big club and had done a really good job, and um, and certainly stepped in and, and did a did a great job with the Western Bulldogs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then what was the the next step in your career after the doggies? Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, like I said, in hindsight, I recognised that I probably didn't necessarily manage that as well as I could. But what it did do, it gave me it gave me some impetus to look for look for other opportunities. Um, and that, that was essentially when my first opportunity, my first exposure to to working in cricket happened in 2007. Um, and again, ironically, it was Justin Cordy again who had been working with the Australian cricket team. They'd, they'd created they'd created a role um, based out of Brisbane at what was you know the old Centre of Excellence, which is now the National Cricket Centre. Um, and it was essentially a, a, a full time physical performance role that was looking after all of the. Um, the Cricket Australia um, pathway programs, including what was the old AIS cricket program, which is a sort of residential, residential cricket academy program that, that ran through the winter um, whilst Justin was, was touring with the Australian, the Australian team. Awesome. And what were you uh, feeling there? Because that's something that you were experiencing as a 17-year-old. Now you're the, uh, a, a practitioner on the flip side. Uh, was it a bit of a pinch me moment that, that that's where your career had ended up? It was a little bit. It was, I mean, it was... It, it meant it meant that the transition was relatively smooth because you know, like I knew I, I know the sport, I, I knew the culture yeah. of the sport, the terminology, um, you know, the, the, some of the technical models and the frameworks around that. So it was a really sort of smooth transition for you know for me to step into that. But it was a little bit of a sort of a catch me moment in the sense that I'd sort of recognised a few years prior to that that my own aspirations were <laughs> were over, right? So to be actually up there, you know, helping Mitchell Johnson and you know these sort of young elite guys. And part of, part of my time was also to step in and, and, and cover for Justin um, when he took some time off the road. And, you know, not, not, long, after I'd, not long after I'd started in Brisbane, he, he actually resigned to head back into, into AFL. So all of a sudden I found myself on the, on the road with the Australian team with, you know, Ricky Ponting captaining and Matthew Hayden and <laughs> Adam Gilchrist. Okay. And, yeah, so it was just like, yeah, it was a little bit surreal, right? Yeah, and take us through that. So what, what is the... Sh- what are the big differences between a high performance manager in the AFL and the, and the performance team, and then the high performance manager in uh, at Cricket Australia and the performance team? Yeah, so I mean, if if you want to use my sort of my current my current sort of position, right? So I've stepped in. I've now, you know, this is my second innings at cricket. I, I started in in 2016 and, and took on the role of physical performance coach with the, with the team. Yeah. Um, you know, my, my the scope of my role is essentially to you know, manage manage the physical performance program for. Um, the Australian team that's on tour at any given time um, with specific reference to this Cricket Australia contracted player group. Um, so every year, you know, a certain number of players are, are centrally contacted, contracted to Cricket Australia um, based on their sort of previous year's performances and, and likelihood to represent Australia in, in, the, in the coming year. Um, so they become, a, you know, the, the primary portfolio. But, you know, cr- cricketers are picked out of state cricket, you know, Despite you know contract status or otherwise, so um, you know as we as a squad is picked, we, we may have a you know a leading period for that. My job is to 
understand we have a monitoring group of players that are likely to be picked and we, we, we liaise and uh, work closely with the, with the Australian team selectors on who, who's in that sort of monitoring group and we're, we're, we're sort of leading and guiding and influencing you know, their, their preparation um, leading into a series. Yeah, so hopefully that gives you sort of an insight. And then, and then we have, we have a, a, um, a, in the past, we have a physical performance manager, Andrew Weller, who's actually stepped into a sort of a, a slightly expanded role with a few, few bigger reports across both sports science and medicine. Um, but he's essentially sits across Australian cricket systems, um, you know, manages our sort of national standards program, testing across the country, you know, communicating, you know, database, database stuff, um, managing sort of national GPS integration, that type of stuff. So, um, yeah, we've got a sort of a, a direct, direct coaching line and then we have a, a system, system guide and influence and lead capacity to our role. And um, you mentioned collaboration off, off air and how critical that is um, with like the core group. Um, how often would you be in communication with strength and conditioning coaches managing the state side? Yeah, I'm I'm in I'm in communication with those guys weekly, um, yeah, right. you know, and, and at different free, you know, sometimes it's multiple times a week. Um, and for some guys, if we've got if we don't have any players coming out of um, one of the states, for example, um, then I may, it may be a couple of weeks before, until I speak to them. But generally, it's you know, on average, I'm speaking to those guys weekly, understanding player status. We've got thankfully we've got centralized a centralized programming and, and load load monitoring database that I can um, that's sort of open open source for us to all all be sort of singing from the same hymn book, so to speak. Um, yep. So I've got oversight on what's going on. I'm able to sort of make changes and edits and communicate based on based on that. But yeah, we're we're sort of tracking player status and trying to guide guide decision making from week to week. Yeah. The contracted players given like their own sort of software and tech for then the state strength coaches to upload that data so you have access to it all? Or do those state teams all have the same sort of technology that those 17 are using? Yeah, essentially Australian, Australian cricket invested many years ago, actually, you know, in my, my sort of initial foray in Australian cricket back in 2000, 2007, it was this way we have a, you know, an athlete management system that sits across all of Australian cricket. So essentially all of the, um, all of the state high performance departments have, um, have access to the same database. Every every player has a has a you know, unique ID, and based on based on sort of role security, um, yeah, we can all get access to the same information if we if we've got um, you know essentially a shared accountability on on a player's development. You've worked across uh, world class athletes and you know Australian rules footballers at the, at the top level. Is there, are there a common sort of trend, either mindset or physical capacity that you can recognise in in young youth that they're They've got a, a, fright, a, a bright future ahead of themselves. Yeah, was, so there's two parts of the question. I'll give you two parts of the answer. One, one, you, one you mentioned was mindset. Um, the thing that probably stands out from a mindset perspective with all of the greats across all, all of the sports that I've worked in is that I have a really clear understanding and idea about um, what it is they're doing and why they're doing it, um, particularly when it comes to core business around their skills, right? So they're... they're you know, this sort of notion of mindful practice is, is probably one of the things that stands out for me. They're, they're very clear. They're very clear on what they're doing in a session. They're very clear on what they're working on. And they're very clear on what success looks like in any, at any given moment for themselves. Um, and that's, that's probably something the first that, thing. Is that something that's developed within your environment with the practitioners that you got? Do you work on that intentionally? Or do, the, do you think that that's a, a talent that 
those successful players sort of come in with and they've already got that sort of clarity and purpose? I think it's both. I think it's both. I think, I think the, the great, the great, the true, the true elite, um, those, those are attributes that they bring. There's no doubt about that. But certainly, but certainly, you know, the, the standards and the environment that you create as a program can help, can help raise that within everyone that's exposed to it. You know, I don't, I don't necessarily, I don't think that our environment um, yeah, of the Australian cricket changes the way that Steve Smith goes about business. You know, I think he, that's something he's brought to the table. He, the environment has helped him in other, in other ways and in other areas, but when it comes to the clarity of mindset around his, around his preparation, um, that's something he's brought to the table. You know, but I think you know, he's, he's a unique individual and we, we, can, we see unique in, individuals you know, across, across elite sport. But certainly, you know, the, the standards and the environment that you create can certainly raise, raise that across, across the entire team, the entire squad or um, the entire system. How different or how, how much variability would there be in preparation to a game from a mental and physical point of view within your, yeah, your core group? Yeah, there's, there's, high, there's high variation. Um, you know, everyone, I mean, certainly at, at our level now, it's really, really important that we understand that people are coming to the table with a very, very well-developed skill set and a very well-developed set of attributes. So a lot of it is about making sure that we're creating an environment that's, that's going to allow them to, to deliver on what they do best. Um, so, you know, I think I've spoken publicly about this. Sometimes the best thing you can do is actually do nothing, right? That's a skill in and of itself is actually stay out of people's way at certain times. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, then it's also about when you might intervene or when you may ask a, a meaningful question to try and, you know, redirect those, those are sort of some of the nuanced things. Um, but certainly in, in relation to, the, to your question, there's high variation based on individual needs and individual preferences for preparation. And then certainly from a physical perspective, um, you know, you've got different skill sets. You've got, you know, for, for us, you've got batters, bowlers, you've got um, spinners, weed keepers. So there's, there's high var- variation in their, in their preparation. But even within, within the same skill, sub, subgroup, you know, different players will, will tend to want more volume. Others will want less um, others will want certain certain exposures to certain drills. Others will want um, a different one. So there's there's high variation at the, at the top end. In terms of um, sports science and and load management, what are some like key pillars when it comes to managing cricketers? Uh, I guess I know. So let's go with fast bowlers. I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. What would be some some big rocks? I guess to manage those fast bowlers. Yeah. So we we have we have a, a GPS program like most other elite sports and and. We've got our, our sort of general general sort of movement variables that we're looking at um, in terms of displacements, right? but um, the other part we look we do look at is we have a, um, we have some sort of proprietary algorithms that that Catapult have put together for us that um, that look at some of the fast some of the specific elements of force with the fast bowlers um, that give us an understanding about sort of you know player load and the sort of relative intensity. We've got you know sort of the capacity to understand different different velocity signatures at certain time points of the delivery and the run-up. So, um, yeah, those, there's certainly some stuff that we're looking at there that, that help us understand, um, you know, what a player's doing, what they've done and, and how they're coping and how they're, how they're presenting and what they're putting out, I guess, physically. And uh, uh, it's probably naive of me, but you, so you've got your GPS. Yeah, it, it's still ball tracking is going on. And is, it, is that specific to the Ks per hour that they bowl? Is it almost like zones? of if they're bowling at, let's say they're 150K per hour bowler, 
do you treat that like max speed for an AFL footballer in terms of percentages of how many balls they bowl at that pace? Yeah, so yeah, we're, 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 yeah, we're, 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 we're certainly uh, tracking and monitoring, you know, radar gun speed with our bowlers. That's, that's one of the things that we know is, is um, you know, an, an element of their, their physical output is the velocity. Um, yep. But there's, but there's certainly, there's, we're certainly looking at from a sort of GPS and an accelerometer perspective. We're, we're looking at some of the some of the things that they're doing to produce that output. Um, you know, so an analogy will be, you know, rather than just looking at um, displacement for a vertical jump, right? We can use a use a force plate to understand um, some of the sort of movement signature that's that's occurring for how they're producing a 65 centimeter vertical jump, for example. Um, so similar with the fast bowlers, we've got 148 kilometers an hour as a as a mean mean speed for the match and. But we've got some other stuff that sits behind it that might suggest we well, actually, yeah, the player was able to maintain um, their speed across a across a match or across a, a series. But actually, there's a whole bunch of things that seem to be changing to produce to to maintain that output because you know humans are pretty pretty clever. They'll self-organize to to find the the best way to produce the outcome. And at the you know at the pointiest end of elite sport, um, some of those high end outputs can be maintained. It's just sometimes it comes at a, it comes at a cost. What about for the batsmen? What are the sort of key areas to manage them? Yeah. M- managing their head generally is, is probably the best way, best way to go. Um, yep. And I sort of slightly, slightly facetious, but in reality, that's part of it, right? Is making sure that they've sort of got, you know, clear air um, and that the sort of their preparation has been, um, has been able to be squared away prior to a game. Um, you know, we obviously, have, we are, we're tracking their, you know, their distances, their speeds, their, you know, how, you know, their batting minutes, um, you know, the, some of the, you know, high-speed running loads, et cetera, they might be getting from either batting and or fielding um, and understanding some of, the, some of the directional change loads that are going on. Um, but certainly, certainly the big rocks from a, from a physical perspective when it comes to cricket are certainly a fast bowling group. They're the ones who are exposed to the, um, to the highest, you know, physical load. Um, and batters you have, this sort of so underlying landscape of physicality um, that with uh, you know heavy cognitive demand, um, you know lots of time on task, those types of things. If they're succeeding, that that need to need to sit above that, right? So um, yeah, you got to sort of square away some of the sort of under, underlying landscape, but understand that there's a need to hit you know a million cricket balls, right? You guys don't get good without doing that, so. Um, you know, whilst you might have a sort of a, a low picture from a movement perspective that is really high, um, recognizing that you know it, it's not just as easy to say, "Hey, mate, I don't think you should. I don't think you should bat today," um, because that's not necessarily going to address the sort of global performance requirements of of a batter. I'm probably going to be off on a bit of a tangent, mate, but it sort of hopefully that sort of describes the, the sort of challenges of the, of the different skill groups. Yeah, hundred percent. And like you said, it's so individual and. Um... And, and it makes a lot of sense. Like the bowlers, it is quite physical. And then the main stressor for the, for the batsman is the concentration aspect of the role. And, the, and the, yeah, you get out and you're pretty, uh, the day's over for a batsman. So it makes a lot of sense that the, the um, mental side of things is, yeah. is the key pillar. Um, with on the different, so 2020 one day cricket and then test cricket, and then obviously all the traveling and everything, like, do you see future cricketers? Um, being specialists, it's probably already started now, but they um, are purely going to be a 2020 cricketer and they're, they're identified early as 2020 is going to be your go and then test cricketers with their 
personality type and their traits and strengths will morph themselves into a into a test and then you might have a few that are in between that are one day as in can play a bit of all three um, or do you see it being um, a good batsman will, will be able to adapt no matter what to all the three different forms of the game? Yeah, you, I mean, we're, certainly, we're certainly seeing more specialists emerge for short format cricket. There's no doubt about that. You know, um, The opportunities across franchise cricket are, are presenting um, you know, a, a real career path for people to specialise in that, in that area. But you know, the, the game still prioritises the long, longest format. You know, I think certainly, certainly here in this country, we, we, we value um, and celebrate the, the longest, longest version of the game. And I think that certainly here in this country, and, and certainly I, th- I think observing, you know, the other sort of major, major test playing nations, you know, players still, still aspire to play test cricket for their country. So I think that, you know, your point about the best, the best batters will, will, find ways i think that's that's definitely true um but that being said the 2020 cricket is is changing rapidly you know the power the power game for batters is is on another level that compared to sort of the early days of the, of the format um you know bowling specialists the impact of spinners um the mis- the mystery component of, of certain spinners that like these are these are this are rapidly changing format of the game that i think is going to um yeah, it's going to be really interesting to follow its impact on on the ability of you know, what what players can actually do out in the cricket field. It's it's already fascinating, you know. With guys like Glenn Maxwell can play three sixty degrees, you know, like this, you know, he's not the only one. There's such such a high diversity and array of highly skilled players out there now. And for the best, like seventeen that are contracted to the Australian team, like where would they? I know it's hard to do percentages and stuff, but like as a physical performance manager. Is it majority of your time off season, pre-season preparing for test cricket and then the 2020 campaigns and the one day, um, how's it all fit in? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the, in reality, the, the, classic, the classic paradigm of pre, pre-season into, into competitive season just doesn't exist for the majority of the top players. You know, it's, it's, it's far more like tennis, actually, in many respects. I mean, t- tennis players can do get a sort of a shortened pre-season for many, for many of them. But in reality, you're sort of looking at you're looking at sort of preparation blocks um, more than, more so than classic classic extended preseason periods. And so, really, what what you're actually doing with the with the top guys is is recognizing what what the competitive landscape looks like in the short, medium, and long term. And then you sort of you're sort of trying to navigate navigate a preparation path that looks to looks to ensure that. At, at the key time points of, of different format changes, you've, you've sort of got your preparation right. Um, you know, so for fast bowlers, for example, thankfully, thankfully the, sort of the intensity profile doesn't shift too much, right? But actually, so the thing we need to square away is the volume, skill volume. Yeah. Right? So the number of balls that a, a player needs to be prepared to bowl, that we need to square that away um, in preparation for long format cricket. Um, and that's sometimes difficult to do if you've got short, short format competition leading in so you've got to find ways to um you know sort of top 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 up so to speak you know and make sure that you're using using the sort of training training day opportunities where you can to sort of build a build a sort of more chronic resilience to the higher volumes over time um similar with the batters right you've got to make sure that you you're getting some of the higher intensity high you know ability to change directions hard and fast for short format cricket in periods where you might be playing longer format cricket where the sort of, you know, the higher, more rapid acceleration demands are just not necessarily as, as dense. 
So those are, those are things that you sort of need to square away more in your preparation block um, leading into the, the sort of competitive periods that are ahead of you. You have to be super organised, I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> and super adaptable. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and going back to your career journey for a second, um, you've had a lot of leadership positions across different sports. Is that something that you've worked on a lot, the leadership, uh, communication, um, you know, performance meetings, all the things that come with being in a managerial position? Or is it something that you've learned through experience um, and being, you know, by getting those jobs? It's both. So, you know, like uh, fortunately when you're, when you're sort of in positions of, of leadership, you get exposed to opportunities to develop more of those skills and you get opportunities to sort of identify where, you, where some of your shortcomings or opportunities, you know, so your performance opportunities might lie. Um, but certainly, I mean, it's, and certainly more recently, you know, that, that's an area that's of great interest to me is how I can actually be a more effective leader. How can, how can I be a more effective communicator? making sure that you know, constantly seeking feedback from people on what's working, what's not working. Those are, those are things that, I, that are hugely valuable to me. And so that will be with players. Um, you mentioned coaches um, in the past. So what, who, would, who would you ask those sort of questions to, that feedback? Who would, you, yeah, who would be your go-tos? Yeah, so I, 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 now, I now routinely ask you know, three to four people every two to three months to give me – you know, one to three things that they think I'm doing well and one to three things that they think I can do better. Um, and I'll just change, change the cohort of people that I'll, that I'll ask. And I'll generally try and ask, a, you know, of the three to four people, I'll generally try and ask at least one player, at least one coach, at least one stakeholder from within the state cricket system. And, and if I can, someone who's close to me that's actually living the day-to-day experience with me who's not necessarily, you know, a team manager or a, um, physiotherapist or a security manager, I'll, I'll, I'll ask them to give me, give me an idea about how I'm tracking. Um, and that's something that I've, I've learned over time. I wasn't very, I wasn't very good at that early on. Um, looking back in hindsight, I, I, I wasn't very good at going to seek that out. And that's something that, that over time I've learned is a hugely valuable resource for personal and professional development is actually the people around you that you're interfacing with every day and the people you're actually trying to impact. If you're getting... Uh, let's say ten different things. There's a couple that that line up, but ten different things. Um, how do you manage? How do you filter that to action those areas? Uh, yeah. So, so I, I've, I've talked about this. One one of the so one of the things is that um, as trying to trying to um, identify and prioritize those responses that are, are generally relatively consistent. You know, you'll, you'll always get ten things, right? And there'll be ten different things, but in amongst the ten you'll find that there's one to three things that, are re- that generally are, consi- are a consistent theme. So I'll prioritise those. Right? But they also, need to be, they also need to be sort of understood in, in conjunction with your own sort of personal an- an analysis and insights. It's understanding how do, I th- how, how do I think I'm going? Where am I being effective? What's not, what's not working? Okay, is there, is there some common ground with the responses I'm getting from the people around me? And those are the things that I tend to attack first. Okay. Yeah, I love that. That's great. I'm going to try and start implementing that. So that's, what's that once a month? No, I, I, generally, I generally try and do it once every, at least once every three months. You know, so yeah. it's sort of a, I sort of, sort of you know, loosely call it the rule of three, right? Sort of, you know, three people every three months give me three things. <laughs> and I, don't, I actually don't know if I've stolen that from anyone. Yeah. But if I have, I apologize for not referencing whoever, whoever put it out there. 
but it's just, <laughs> it's just become a thing for me. Yeah, yeah, it's a good system. Like, I mean, um, yeah, to get three things is is really succinct, and then, like you said, every three months. So, what, do you think that once you've been in an environment for a few years, people are going to come to expect it, or do you vary the person so often that uh, it stays pretty fresh? No, I, th- I, I think I've, I, I think by a- by asking by asking people and being really open about it. Yeah. You know, that's, that's done a couple of things. One is, one is it's, it's essentially given permission for people to, to tell me how I might improve mm. and it's taken away some of the fear of consequence mm. because that's one of the things that, that holds people back from, from giving you feedback is they're worried about what, how you're going to respond. Mm. Actually, when you, when you go and seek it out, it actually breaks that's that right. down because people know that you actually you, you want to hear the information. Mm-hmm. And part of it is also recognizing that just because someone tell, gives you some feedback doesn't mean you, you're not beholden to listen to it, right? You're not beholden to change because of a piece of feedback, right? That's part of, that's part of this, you know, for want of a better term, the contract of, of, of seeking feedback. Um, but it's, it's, there's huge value because people all of a sudden are, are now, they understand you're looking to get better. And so they're happy to come and, hey, Cal, you know, in your session briefing the other day, I just, I reckon you spoke too much. I reckon you lost the group. Paddy, you know what? I did. I got stuck. I, I, got, I didn't prepare well enough. I got stuck on a detail. It wasn't effective. Thanks for the feedback, mate. Mm. Yeah, that's awesome. And, that, and how long, like you mentioned, you're not sure if you got that from someone else, but it sounds like it came organically. Uh, how long have you been doing it for? I've been, I've been doing it for a couple of years now actively. Yeah. 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 And, and, and in a far more, you know, in a consistent routine way, I think, you know, over the course of the last eight years, I reckon I've steadily become better at asking people for feedback, but I'm, yeah. I'm far more routine about trying to open the door for people to, to give me some insights in, in how I'm performing. And as a byproduct, has that created a more inclusive, um, you know, feedback is, you know, the stigma of the consequences, like you mentioned, is dropped and now practitioners in your team are asking for feedback and they're more comfortable with feedback, do you think? I hope so. I mean, I, 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 feel, like, I feel like it's in, in, increased my ability to get information, um, you know, and I haven't necessarily had to really go, go digging as hard as I, I might have had to five years ago. And, and what about challenges? What, what has been like a significant challenge in your career and um, what would be the lear- learnings from it? How did you grow? Yeah, I think, I mean, I touched upon one of them earlier, right? It was when, you know, when I essentially, I, I felt like I'd had a demotion at the Western Bulldogs. That was, a, that, was a, that was the first professional sort of challenge that I experienced. That, you know, so, so that was a, you know, and again, I, I didn't handle it particularly well. But the great thing was that these, these hardships give you opportunities to reflect, you know, so when I finally had distance and a little bit of maturity to maybe look back and think, you know, how I could have, um, made that situation better um yeah this, that that allowed me the opportunity to recognize hey you know what like yeah maybe you can recognize that other people have some real value to add um you don't necessarily have to agree all the time but there there's value in a different way of looking at things um there's also a nice reinforcement for the things that you did that i did stand up for it that's at certain times so that, that that was certainly one of the one of those sort of first challenges and, to that, and I'm, I'm open to say, like in 2018, when the team faced, you know, a really significant challenge, um, you know, everything that, everything that we've done since has been, a, you know, hugely, hugely impactful 
you know, our ability to navigate out of that as a collective and, and work together to, um, you know, recognize where we can do things a bit differently and a bit better. And, um, yeah, and to, and to, to achieve one of the, one of the goals, which is sort of, um, you know, regain some of the faith and, and trust in the public. That's hugely rewarding. And, and others have spoken far better than I have about, about that process. But alongside it, the, you know, the great, the great sort of reinforcement as well is that we've achieved some success um, on the field at this, you know, a, along the journey. And I think that, you know, it's a great reinforcement of um, what a values-led environment can, can achieve. And on that note, what, what's a highlight that you look back fondly of and, and proud of throughout your career? For me, like it's always, it's always nice to think back to those, those sort of milestone on-field performances. You know, recently, winning, you know, as a team, seeing the guys win the T20 World Cup last year was, was hugely rewarding. You know, it was a massive, massive achievement for Australian cricket. That was hugely rewarding in a format that we, we, hadn't, sort of, um, we hadn't achieved that before. Um, but, you know, again, I, and I, hope this, I hope it doesn't sound cliche, but, you know, it's... it's for me, the greatest, the greatest, the greatest sort of fulfilment comes from thinking about the impact you've had on on individuals along the journey. You know, so when I when I look back at, you know, the people that I've sort of worked with or managed and and what they're doing in their career. You know, I caught up with a former intern of mine when I was in Hobart for a coffee, and she's, um, you know, she's got married and she's expecting a baby, and she's a SNC coach at the Tasmanian Institute of Sport, and she's doing great things. Like that's that's hugely rewarding for me. You know, seeing players achieve some of their dreams on the on the field that's that's hugely rewarding. You know, and and some of the some of the niceties around trophies and you know recognition they're they're icing on the cake. But those are the things that sort of you look back on, I think, and are truly meaningful. Yeah, like you said earlier, like to, we are to serve. So when you see that the the servings are working <laughs> and you've helped people on their way, that makes a lot of sense. Um, We'll go into the lighter side of the podcast, mate. Uh, this is a bit of fun with these questions. So the first one's, which movie or TV series can be book as well has impacted you the most and why? I loved Forrest Gump. You know, I loved Forrest Gump when it came out. You know, just the sort of joy in the simple things of life. I think there's a lot of lessons, you know. Shawshank Redemption, classic, you know, hero's journey stuff. I love that. You know, those, those are sort of, you know, and that's got nothing to do with sort of professional. That's just sort of, you know. The human Still side of, of, yeah, very much so. You know, I love that. Yeah. I love that stuff. I, I love it. I love a hero's journey, and I, I love I love something that touches on the, on enjoying the sim, the simple things in life and the, and the simple joys that that can come from you know the most innocuous parts of your life. And what about a favorite inspirational quote or life motto? The thing I always find about about quotes is they're very very context specific. So I, I think that you know different quotes will resonate at different times of your life. One of, the, one of the things that I've, I've probably stuck with me is, is, is that, you know, no plan, and apologies for the sort of war reference, I certainly don't want to glorify the sort of military environment at, at the current time, but certainly the quote, no plan survives first contact with the enemy, I think holds, holds a lot of resonance for me in what we do. Um, we have to plan. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a re- you know, religious planner. I like to be well-planned. I like to be well-prepared, but it just reminds me that actually, it's really important to be adaptable once, once you hit the trenches because the reality is that the plan never goes to plan. Mm. Yeah, it reminds me of the Mike Tyson one, which I've forgotten about. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's right. <laughs> Until you punch in the face, right? That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about pet peeves what, in, your, in your professional uh, life? What, what, what makes you angry? What are your pet peeves? 
Yeah, I, I probably default when when people are disorganised. Um, that that probably rubs me up the wrong way. Um, but certainly, I mean, yeah, that, those are probably the things that that sort of get up my goat a little bit when people are disorganised or turn up unprepared for something. Yep. And then, favourite way to spend your day off? I'm the I'm a classic introvert, mate. So on a day off, I like mm. to I generally remove myself from people, and it'll generally involve some form of exercise preferably in the outdoors um, it will involve a lot of coffee it will you know have some sort of mental stimulation of some description whether it's reading a book or um, listen to a podcast and it'll invariably finish with a nice meal of some description yeah oh, yeah the recharge day love that <laughs> yeah. yeah very much uh, and in a covid free world uh, favorite holiday destination and why my partner Jenna and I went to Croatia in 2016, which feels like decades ago right now after COVID and three kids under five. Um, but yeah, we, that, that part of the, the Dalmatian coast and yeah, Croatia and yeah, that was certainly, yeah, that was a really fun time, really awesome experience. Well, we're at the end of the podcast, mate. Thank you so much for, for jumping on and sharing your experiences and, and helping us developing strength and conditioning coaches learn off yourself. Uh, as well as the athletes as well, to pick up some, some gems to help their game. Uh, what are you excited about for, for 2022, mate? What's on the horizon for you? Uh, I've learned I've I've that most of my unhappiness comes from unmet expectations. I'm trying not to have too many. Um, <laughs> yeah. but, but certainly, I've, you know, I, I spoke to you off air that I've got some time off the road. You know, I've, I've taken some time away, away from touring to, um, yeah, to sort of recharge and spend some time with family, which has been really important. And, and to be able to do that in, in the environment that's, you know, starting to open up and is a bit more like our, our sort of normal life, that's been that I'm really looking forward to that. You know, I'm, I'm enjoying that right now, being able to, you know, live our lives, um, you know, as close to normal as is possible in the, in the current times with, with the family. That's, that's something I'm really looking forward to in the short term. And then we're scheduled to go to Sri Lanka in the middle of the year and we haven't been there for better part of will be six years pretty much by that stage. So I'm really excited that we can, we can get back to Sri Lanka. It's a you know, great place to tour and they're you know, amazing people and um, be really exciting. I think by that stage, I'll be jumping out on my skin to, to get back on the road and, and, you know, get back to doing what we do. And for those that want to get in contact with you, where's the best place? Yeah, I mean, you can, I'll probably spend more time, more time on a personal level on Instagram, but certainly, certainly I'm, try, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to spend more time and, and do more sharing of my learning and insights on LinkedIn. So reach out to me on LinkedIn from a professional perspective. That's probably the best place, best place to catch me and, and also hopefully, uh, you know, somewhere I can add some value to, to my network. Absolutely. We'll add the, the links in the show notes. Well, thanks again, Aaron. And uh, yeah, thank you for, for jumping on the, the podcast and thank you for everyone listening in live. If you joined on a little bit later on, you can watch the recording on our YouTube channel. And then in the next couple of weeks, we'll post the podcast recording, which you can watch on any of your directories, the Spotify, iTunes, uh, and we'll upload that on on Instagram when it releases. But yeah, thanks again, Aaron, for jumping on. Our next live chat will be with Daryl Griffiths, the founder of Coda Nutrition. That'll be next Thursday at 8.30 p.m. If you enjoyed this episode and want even more, our academy is for you. The Prepare Like a Pro Academy is a platform that hosts exclusive features and bonus content, such as Q&A segment, aimed at getting to know the guests on a more personal level. Here's an example with Emily Meehan, head sports dietitian of Collingwood Football Club. What are things that, that fire you up? Oh, this one is always, uh, so I suppose it is, um, 
it'll be topical for most people, I think, but staying in your lane. And I yep. often find that with nutrition, everyone eats, so everyone has an opinion. And I think that's what really gets me fired up um, because so many people try and provide nutrition advice based on their end of one experience when they did intermittent fasting or keto or whatever it might be. And then game changes, yeah, like game game changes whatever that might be. And look, it probably keeps me in a job, but that it does drive me insane because yeah. sometimes the information can be so detrimental um, and opposite to what I've been working with my athlete or athletes and, you know, and because they hear it on someone's socials or through a documentary, it unravels everything that I've been working with an athlete for. Yeah, yeah. Another feature of our academy is the opportunity each week to join myself as co-host on the Prepare Like a Pro live chat show. Here's an example with Academy member Rama Davies, the friendly conditioning coach at the Box Hill Hawks. Welcome, Rama, to the chat. Uh, Rama has also worked at, at Box Hill, or currently he's working at Box Hill Hawks with us, awesome. so he's another Box Hill man uh, in the strength and conditioning department. So I'll handle it over to you, Rama, to, to ask you a question, mate. Thanks for joining us. Excellent. Thanks, Jack. And, yeah, thanks, um, thanks Sam, for the chat. It was uh, I found it to be really insightful, plenty of gems in there. Um, and I enjoyed it a lot. Um, mate, my, my question to you was you spoke a, a, quite a bit about um, perspective during that chat. Um, and I was wondering what are some of the things that you either know or um, do physically that um, you wish you either knew or did um, back at the beginning of your career? Uh, what are some of those things? Mm. Yeah, good question. Um, yeah, so I suppose with perspective on life, um, that sort of point, um, it yeah certainly yeah has been massive for me now, and and didn't probably have that as much um, when I was younger. Um, I suppose one thing I might mention is is gratitude. I spend a lot of my mm. time um, doing a lot of gratitude exercises, listening to podcasts doing a, a journal every day just a bit to say what I'm grateful for sort of three things and um, that's a fantastic way that I've been able to yeah like reset and and just kind of gain that gratitude and perspective about you know that there is more to life than football or you know might be whatever as an SNC coach you know if something's you're having a hard time um, it can be massive with just yeah opening your eyes a little bit and losing that sort of tunnel vision or being stuck in that in that work bubble um, yeah. so that's that's been huge um, I think I wish back then when I was younger, I asked more questions and was a bit more open to different things. Mm. I think I was a bit single-minded back then and, um, you know, I thought there was one way of doing things and, um, if I kind of didn't have that fear of, you know, asking a silly question or fear of judgment, it would have got me a lot further and I probably would have learned a lot quicker. Um, and yeah. and yeah, like just yeah, being open to sort of different things because um, you never know what you might find. It's just yeah, there's so many people, like great people out there, knowledgeable people to learn off. And there's plenty more where that came from. If you would like to learn more, then enter patreon.com forward slash prepare like a pro or head to the link in our show notes. Thank you for listening to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. If you like this episode, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, give a review or even share with your mates. 
The show is recorded in Melbourne, Australia. Be sure to follow our Instagram page for all updates on our latest and greatest. If you would like to get in touch to suggest a guest or advertise with the Prepare Like a Pro podcast, please email me at jack at preparelikeapro.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.